Our text this afternoon is verses 21 through 23 of Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, our text this afternoon is from what is called the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, it is drawn from what we might view as the application of that sermon that begins especially with chapter 7. And much of the application of this sermon comes to us by way of warning. The same disciples who are comforted with the assurance that their Heavenly Father graciously rewards His children, that He knows their needs, and that He will give good things to those who ask Him. Well, the same ones are also told to enter into uh, the kingdom by way of the narrow gate, They are warned against false prophets. Beware of false teachers, uh, they are told. And then perhaps most sobering or or perhaps most alarming, we might say, most sobering of all, they're given this picture in our text of of self-deceived people who seem to be frantically pleading uh, their right to heaven, only to hear those most terrible words of our Lord Jesus Christ, Depart from me. Away from me, you evildoers. Now I've come to this text uh, in the course of a series of sermons on the Sermon of the Mount in my home church in Edmonton. And uh, I say that for one thing to uh, inform you that I haven't chosen this text as if it is especially suitable to this congregation. Uh, I say it also because I'm conscious of the fact that these words of warning are best heard in connection with the entire sermon. Uh, But at the same time, neither do I apologize or feel that we ought to become defensive about proclaiming passages of God's word that really have a warning character to them. Because the Holy Spirit has inspired these passages also for us. For his people. He has inspired them for our good. It would be a spiritual crime to neglect such passages. It would be foolish on our part to dismiss them or to gloss over them without taking them very, very seriously. Um, We've all heard after the uh, terrorist attacks on 9-11, of the investigations that were conducted to find out just who might have known beforehand about these threats. Were there those who were given warning? Did some people have information that they kept secret, that they didn't disclose to others? Were there those responsible who, who kept their mouths shut, who didn't sound an alarm? The very thought of this happening is is abhorrent to us. 
It disturbs people greatly to think that there may have been those who have known about an imminent danger and said nothing about it. I'm not saying there were, but the very thought is distressing to people. Those people ought to pay if this is really true. Well, there will never be a Matthew 7 uh, inquisition, uh, Matthew 7 investigation or commission appointed. Uh, to examine pastors as to how much they really know about what the Bible teaches and how faithful have they been in communicating the warnings of Scripture. But for any of us who know the Bible, we know that there are many such warnings and they have to be taken very, very seriously because the consequences of failing to take heed to such warnings are far more serious than uh, death in a fiery crash. A mere temporal death, however horrible that might be. The Lord Jesus Christ gives us such faithful warnings as we have in our text. The Lord Jesus faithfully warns us against falsely professing his name. There are many who will appear before him on the day of judgment with such a false profession. That is very clear from our text. It's our first point that we're considering together that many will appear before Christ on the day of judgment with such a false profession. Certainly Jesus is referring to the day of judgment in verse 22 when he says, many will say to me on that day, that great day, that day in which all things will appear as they really are, that day in which there will be no more pretense, there will be no sham. That great day in which it will be so unmistakably clear to everyone that life was serious and earnest. And a human life is of great significance. I often think that the the answer to uh, the preoccupation with self-esteem in our day is for people to come to grips with their significance as being created in the image of God and of having such significance in His sight that they will one day appear before Him to give an account for their lives. Well, that says something significant about the individual, about the seriousness with which God takes every individual human life. We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And that might be the beginning of awakening people to the significance of their lives. Not to think that they're so great. Not to think that uh, the answer to low self-esteem is to stand in front of the mirror and say, I'm special, I can do whatever I choose. But to realize that they're created in God's image. And he gives them significance. And the fact that they will appear before him in judgment proclaims that significance loud and clear, doesn't it? That's the day of which our Lord Jesus Christ is speaking. It's a day in which it will not really matter what other people thought of us. It will not matter what other people thought of our Christian uh, profession at that point, will it? Not in the final analysis. Hopefully the reality of a a well-grounded good reputation in the church of Jesus Christ indeed will be a part of those works that verify the reality of faith on that day, but ultimately it's not what others think of us. Ultimately, the great issue on that day uh, will not be whether we lived and died as as uh, members in good standing of a true church. Not to dismiss the significance of that, 
But ultimately, that's not the final criteria on the day of judgment. In fact, the real question will not even be, were we active and were we busy in our religion? But the great issue will be, what will Christ know to be true of us? He is the judge. That is also clear in our text. It's taught in uh, these wonderful terms in Matthew chapter 25 towards the end of Matthew's gospel where we read in verse 31 and, and, and 32. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Describing there uh, the activity of the Lord Jesus Christ as king and judge. But already at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, already early on in his ministry, the Lord Jesus Christ identifies himself as a great judge and Lord. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Already now at this point he is making that clear. And it's also clear that many will appear before him with those hollow words that are repeated a couple times in our text. Lord, Lord. They will appear with the hollow words of a false profession. And it will be a false profession in spite of the formal correctness of this address. Lord, Yes, Jesus is the Lord. And it will be manifested like never before at that final step of his exaltation when he appears in glory as judge. He is the Lord. That's the proper address. And it's not only the correct address, it's quite significant that people would recognize him as Lord. Again, consider the timing in which Jesus speaks these words at the outset of his ministry. Consider how amazing it would be if there were multitudes already at that time that recognized that he is the Lord. Oh, if they would only see it. How few recognize that while he ministered upon earth. Many will say, Lord, Lord. That's a significant acknowledgement. In fact, it says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, that no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. No one can say that with true faith and understanding. Of course, it's possible, isn't it, to mouth the words and have a kind of belief in the truth of it but without really coming to grips with its significance. But it is a significant acknowledgement. Lord, Lord, and yet it is a false confession here, without faith and without substance. For many it will be false, in spite of their professed submission to the Lord, because after all, the name Lord uh, really indicates a relationship of, of subjects to their master. A Lord is a master, and that's part of this profession that is made. And yet it's a false profession. And it's false also in spite of a great deal of Christian activity that attended that profession. That's probably the most sobering of all, isn't it? When we listen to these many who will appear before Jesus 
uh, frantically, as I said, claiming their right to heaven, appealing to their Christian service and activity. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name. In your name drive out demons and perform many miracles. In Luke's Gospel, we have a similar account uh, of those appearing before the Lord Jesus Christ, saying, Lord, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. They make reference to these activities that that indicate some kind of fellowship with him, or certainly a familiar with, with his word, his teaching. But here in our text, we have those that are, in a sense, laying claim to extraordinary service prophesying, performing many wonderful works in his name. That's why I say they're laying claim to Christian activity. I'm not saying that it was truly Christian in terms of their motivation, their own hearts, but it was not a bland kind of general religious thing they were doing. These activities were done in the name of the Lord. And yet, it is a false profession, making very clear, doesn't it, that acts of service themselves do not make a true Christian. You see, in spite of these things, there was something wrong, something fatally wrong with their profession. Something so wrong that it spoiled everything. Something so wrong that they deceived themselves about ever having entered the kingdom of heaven in the first place. It's not just that when they arrive at the day of judgment that they fail to enter heaven. They never really entered the kingdom of heaven upon earth. In spite of their profession. But the sobering thing also of their text is that they deceive themselves about ever entering the kingdom until it was too late. So that's the significance of this exchange that is depicted here as before the very judgment seat of Christ. Now certainly those who die without faith in Christ, uh, they're not placed in a kind of limbo and uncertainty so that they are unaware of their true spiritual condition until the day of judgment. But this exchange is, is given to us to make clear that there are many who will not come to grips with the fact that their professed Christianity was not genuine until it's too late. So that makes it very, very important, doesn't it, for for us to answer the question, well, what makes the difference? What was it that was so fatally wrong with their Christian profession, such that it spoiled their orthodoxy, if you will, and their Christian activity, and exposed it as false? Well, our our faithful Savior leaves no doubt on this point. He doesn't leave us with any questions as to what it was. The falseness of their profession appears in the fact that it did not produce obedience. It was not attended with those works of true faith that demonstrate the reality of that profession. The difference between the true and the false here is not a matter of orthodoxy in words, or it's not even a matter of religious activity in their life. It's a matter of Doing the will of God. Isn't that so crystal clear in our text in verse 21? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Yes, that's what the words say. Of course, we have to go further, don't we, and ask the question, what does that really mean? And perhaps the most important place to start in answering that question is to be very, very clear on what they do not mean. They do not mean that we are saved by works. They do not mean that it is somehow a sufficient level of obedience to the law of God that merits our entry into heaven. One of the most emphatic statements of our Lord Jesus Christ himself about the will of his Father for us sinners who cannot keep the law and earn our way into God's favor, the most emphatic statement of our Lord Jesus Christ on this very point is in John 6, verse 40, where we read from our Savior's mouth, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life. Let there be no question that the first And the primary revelation of God's will for us as sinners who face the reality of our sin is that we would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we'd repudiate any idea that we can make it to heaven by doing good works. We cannot enter the kingdom without heeding this and no amount of saying Lord, Lord or serving Him as slaves will save anyone Without this kind of obedience. You know, the, the, the Bible talks about the obedience of faith. Submitting to the righteousness of God. Repudiating our own righteousness and believing in the work of Christ as the only foundation for our acceptance. Yes, that's the first aspect of the will of God. That every believer has obeyed, if you will, submitted to. But there's more, isn't there? True faith is more than words, and it is far more than an opinion that Jesus will forgive our sins and take us to heaven. Well, that's not undermining or denying what I just said. Believing in the forgiveness of sins by grace alone is fundamental. But faith is not a matter of words, nor is it a mere opinion that Jesus will forgive my sins and take me to heaven, period. Believing in Christ for salvation always involves repentance, for one thing, doesn't it? It involves a true recognition of our sin. It involves a hatred for our sin and the endeavor to flee from our sin. It involves submission to to Christ as our Lord. Perhaps one of the most helpful commentaries on this passage is what Jesus himself says in Luke 6 when he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? True faith is attended by that serious endeavor after new obedience. You see, the fatal problem with the people described in our text is that they remained workers of iniquity. They remained evildoers. They remained practicers of lawlessness. See, their religion did nothing to really eradicate sin from their lives. Now, no one in this life knows the complete eradication of sin from their lives. And the most holy of 
Christians know but a small beginning of that new obedience. But the, the nature of that obedience itself is radical in the sense that it truly wages war against my sin. It creates an outlook and produces an endeavor after holiness that is the inevitable result of saving faith in Jesus Christ. And these people here did not walk in the path of true repentance and obedience and fighting against sin. And here, here is the falseness of their, their profession. And here, brothers and sisters, lies the warning for us this afternoon. If our confession of Christ does not lead to godly obedience, it is false. If our confession of Christ does not lead to godly obedience, it is false. We're not talking about here a certain measure of attainment. We're not talking about a certain standard that we can identify and then console ourselves that we've arrived. We're talking about the endeavor. We're talking about the reality of repentance the desire and the most serious effort to serve the Lord our God. If our profession of Christ does not result in that, it's false. And our Savior faithfully warns us of that. This teaching does not undermine grace. This teaching does not promote legalism or undermine the Christian's assurance but it's an essential element of the purity and the power of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul warns about, about those coming in the last days who have a form of godliness and deny the power of it. They deny the power of their profession, of that mystery of godliness, of God manifested in the flesh. And the way they deny the power of it is seen in their description as workers of iniquity. They have a form of godliness, but it lacks the, the, the evident power of a changed life. This is an essential element of the power of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, we read... God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who confesses the name of the Lord, he must turn away from wickedness. Or everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. These things go together. They belong to the very foundation of the revelation of the gospel, Jesus Christ. And whoever doesn't take it seriously will face terrible consequences. Christ will speak to them the most awful words they will ever hear. In our text, it's presented in this brief charge. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. There are variations. Uh, I already referred to Matthew chapter 25 and Verse 41, we read, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now again, I I mentioned earlier that the point of our text does not depend on such an actual, literal exchange between every lost individual who comes and appears before him with a false profession. 
But the point is that those who do not do the will of the Father will be excluded from the presence of Christ forever in judgment. Those are stark and uh, sobering words, which Jesus will speak very plainly. There's no mistake about the meaning of this text. We need to take it very seriously. And as we think about these terrible words, let us, let us close with two very, very important considerations. And the first is this, that these words have not yet been spoken uh, to anyone. They have not been spoken to anyone here. These terrible words of our text have not been spoken to anyone here. Hopefully they never will be spoken to anyone here. But it's certainly a fact that they have not been spoken to anyone here. And whoever you may be this afternoon, the Lord knows you in the sense that he knows your name. Uh, He knows all about you. He knows your fears. He knows your struggles. He knows your He knows your sins. He even knows whether or not you are one of those people who, who, though they may have a profession of faith, it's not a genuine profession of faith. He knows if that's true of you. And yet he has not spoken these words to you yet. Hopefully he never will. That's one very important consideration. And in that light, let us consider that there is also a wonderful contrast between these words that will be spoken to so many on that that day of judgment and the words he still speaks to you, whoever you may be, in the gospel. And to consider that contrast between those final words, away from me, depart from me, and those words that the Lord Jesus Christ, through the preaching of the gospel, constantly speaks to sinners. Come to me. Come to me. You who are burdened, you who are heavy laden, come to me, you who thirst, I will give you rest. I will quench your thirst. Come to me in your guilt. Come to me in your fears. Come to me in your need. Come directly to me. Call upon me. Believe in me that I am the Lord and that I am the Savior. And I'm willing and able and mighty to save you, whatever your circumstances might be. Those are the most wonderful words that we can find in the scripture. And they're words that are yet spoken with gospel authority. Wherever the word of God is proclaimed, wherever Christ is preached, today is the day of salvation. And that summons, that command, that that invitation continually goes out. Well, let us be sure that we've heard those words. That we've received them in faith and complied with them. That we have come to the Savior. And that we're continually coming to the Savior. That we seek our life in Him. That in Him we seek the strength to obey. 
that in him we seek uh, the encouragement in the face of our constant failures. That in him we are, we are strengthened with hope and a sense of purpose. In him we find the reason, the desire, and some ability, however weak it is, to pursue holiness in the fear of God. Amen.